0: the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord, you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion, and instead of the great disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations.
1: Amen. Let's give John a hand clap. So today I just wanted to start out with a question. What is our salvation for? We say we've been saved. Why? The scripture we just read, Isaiah, the prophet that lived several hundred years before Christ, said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For what purpose? Why is the spirit of the Lord upon us? We look out in our culture and we see some things around us as we look in our culture that remind us of this text. We see mourning and suffering and broken-hearted people. We see the poor. We see captives and prisoners, especially in, in light of recent events. You know, this week when we heard what happened to our very own Alfred Alongo, shot by a police officer in El Cajon. Part of Tyson and Winnie's family, our family, right? This isn't just some hashtag over in a distant city. Suffering has a face, right? This is our family, our mothers, brothers, sisters, daughters suffering, feeling the loss of this. What does our faith call us to do in a culture with such suffering? What do we do in a culture where systemic racism still exists? Where injustice and pain and suffering still exist? How do we respond to the brokenness of our city? Another way to ask this question, and this is how I'd like to frame this for the whole series, where do our faith and our culture meet? And today we're going to talk about that kind of from a 50,000 foot view. We're going to do a flyover of what we're going to be delving into in this entire series. And there's three movements today. We're going to talk about the problem. We're going to talk about the solution. And we're going to talk about the result. And as we go, I'm, I'm going to go as fast as I can because we've got a lot of ground to cover and a little time to get there. So hang with me, and we're going to move fast today. But this, this question about faith and culture meeting it presents a problem for many Christians in the church. Many Christians aren't really sure what to do with that. And that's one of the reasons why culture looks like it does right now. If you look at the last hundred years, Christianity has kind of taken three approaches to culture. F-D-A. Fortification, domination, and assimilation. Okay, and it's all started back, you know, There was a time when culturally, at least, America was more Christian than not. And back at the turn of this century, with with the rise of modernism and secularism and guys like Charles Darwin putting forth the idea of evolution, all of a sudden, fundamentalist Christians started to panic. You guys see the movie Inherit the Wind, maybe, or read the book back in the day, the Scopes Monkey Trial, where a teacher was put on trial for teaching evolution in a public school And even though the church won, this is 1925, immediately, you know what happened? Christian leaders began pulling out of public institutions like Yale and Princeton that had originally been founded as seminaries. They started pulling out and they started forming their own Christian universities that they could be in control of. Seminaries like Westminster Theological Seminary or Bob Jones. We have a picture of one up here. They even look like fortresses. Right? And this is, this is exactly what's going on in the world at this time. Christianity as a culture is fortifying itself. It's withdrawing from culture because of fear. You know, when fear happens, we have two responses. We know this, right? Fight and what? Flight, yeah. And that's exactly what's happening. We chose flight. And maybe you've even done this. In your life, around your kind of non-Christian friends that have opinions, maybe you've seen yourself kind of turn into undercover Christian. You guys ever do that? kind of hide, fortify, don't really share your opinion you're afraid to. When this happened, it was kind of the start of the Christian bubble, Christian subculture, Christian music, Christian bookstores, Christian clothing apparel. Testaments. In case your breath is unholy, you need to sanctify that breath. I remember driving through Houston, Texas, and seeing a sign off the freeway for a Christian office supply store. Why? Why do we need a Christian office supply store? What's the difference in the office supplies? Have they been baptized? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, are the staples cross-shaped? What, what's going on with the Christian <laughs> office supply store? And 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 so that's kind of what's going on in culture. Around the 70s, it starts to shift because those darn hippies, you know, the Christians are freaking out. Culture's getting less and less Christian. It's time to fight. It's time to take culture back for Jesus. Right? And so in the 70s, you see a lot of Christians are forming groups like the religious right, the moral majority, the Christian coalition focus on the family we feel like we're losing culture we got to fight back so we start aligning ourselves politically start handing out voter guides hey listen if you're a Christian this is how you'll vote right we're gonna take that struggle away from you it's big questions you know let's just make it simple for you here's a voter guide Uh, I was watching an interview on Facebook this week with Philip Yancey one of my favorite authors and he said this quote The more the church gets into bed with politics, the bigger the problem. We hitch our wagons to the state, and then when the state shows what it truly is, which is often a corrupt system, the church is judged and rejected in the same way that the state is. There are countries in Europe where the church is set back for decades and decades because they've been stained by how they sold their soul for power. Domination is all about getting out into culture and controlling it, showing how right you are, pride mixed with fear, like we see in political debates. Christians are on mission, but they're not necessarily on the mission of Jesus Christ anymore. They're on a mission to fight the world and take it back in the name of Jesus. And when we allow our politics, and when we allow our views to influence our mind more than the gospel, People stop encountering Jesus when they encounter us, and they encounter something else. We start making disciples of our own ideologies and political views instead of disciples of Jesus. It's almost like we're praying, my kingdom come, my will be done. Have you guys ever maybe even done this in your own personal life? You try to argue somebody into the kingdom? Try to show them how wrong they are and how... Right, you are? How's that work out for you? Yeah, it's not that great. And same thing happened with culture. Culture saw this happening, and culture revolted. People actually started hating the church, grew hostile. It became a culture war. And you know this if you pay attention to bumper stickers, right? Because in the 70s was the invention of the Christian fish, Jesus fish. People started putting it on the back of their cars. So non-Christians responded with the Darwin fish you guys remember that with the cute little feet and so how did the church respond we got a bigger fish eating the darwin fish because you know what would jesus do and that shows the war that was really going on under the surface and the problem is if we fight that war we lose even if we win you know what I'm saying? Even if we become the dominant source in culture, we lose because we lose Christianity like Philip Yancey was saying. And in the wake of it all, this new generation was growing up in the church, not liking any of this, hating the struggle, the power struggle, the culture war, and I, I like my non-Christian friends, and I, really, can't I just go trick-or-treating mom and dad? You know, that kind of thing is happening. And so this generation grows up, starts saying, why are we fighting this culture war? And another approach to culture was born as a reaction to fortification and domination. And this, this approach to culture wasn't really concerned with the moral majority. In fact, it ended up not being concerned with morality much at all. Unfortunately, by blending in, they lost what really set them apart. See, assimilation is all about Christians not really wanting to hide, not really wanting to fight, just kind of waving the white flag and blending in and drinking really good beer and getting about the business of the day. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just kind of grown apathetic? <sighs> Throw up your hands. I don't even know what to do anymore. And the problem is when you stop allowing your life to be informed by the gospel, you stop being a force for change in the world. So today it's a, it's a bleak landscape. We're left with disengaged Christians hiding from culture, engaged Christians fighting against culture, and Christians that are just losing their identity, losing their beliefs altogether and saying, what's the point? What are we supposed to do? How do we engage with culture, especially a culture that's growing in more and more hostile to the ways of God and the people of God? How do we engage? And I would, I would caution us to pause and look at what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Because Jesus was in a very similar situation, really briefly. In Jesus' day, you had four major kind of religious political parties. You had the Essenes that had withdrawn out into the wilderness and were hiding out there with your scriptures. You had the Pharisees who were trying to rise to power through the system, through adhering to the Romans, and the Zealots who were trying to rise to power by killing the Romans. And then you had the Sadducees who were very sad, you see, because... (laughs) Because they were being seduced by the Hellenistic Greco Roman culture of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection anymore. Pretty soon they would stop believing in spiritual things altogether. So Jesus walks into this cultural landscape with these different groups pulling cultural fabric apart at the seams. And he walks in and he takes a totally different approach not fortification, not domination, not assimilation. Jesus brings incarnation. That's the second point, the solution incarnation john chapter one the classic incarnation text in the beginning was the word the logos the reality of who god is and what his kingdom is like jesus the word and the word was with god and the word was god skip on down to 14 and the word was made what flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory The glory is of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. We're called to living like Jesus, incarnational lifestyles. But what does that look like? Well, fortunately for us, Jesus gives us a picture of it because in one of my favorite chapters of scripture in Luke chapter four, he stands up at the beginning of his ministry in his hometown in Nazareth and read what happens. Jesus went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Sound familiar? Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus proclaims what incarnational ministry looks like. He explains it. He's bringing the kingdom of God right now. And then he immediately, over the next few verses, goes out and starts doing it. He says, you know, in God's kingdom, there's not gonna be any blinded eyes, so be healed. In God's kingdom, there's not gonna be any hunger, so he feeds the multitudes. In God's kingdom, there's not gonna be any isolation and segregation. So he goes out and he touches the leper who had been segregated into their own group of society and marginalized by society. And he touches them and heals them and makes them whole and brings them back in. He says, there's not gonna be any injustice. There's not gonna be any racial inequality. So he goes out and when he teaches a parable, who's the hero of the parable, the guy who got beaten up and put in the dish? Was it the religious leader? Was it the in crowd of their society? No, it was that Samaritan that they hated. And then he goes out and sits on a well with a woman who's a Samaritan. And even among her group that's been segregated and marginalized and hated on by the Christian community at that time, or God's people at that time, right? He sits down and he talks to her about the kingdom. And she's been segregated from her group because of her sexual choices and because of her class. So in the middle of the day, when all the other women are back at home, they've already gone to the well, she goes out alone. And Jesus comes and he loves her. And she becomes the hero of that story. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God with his words to the poor and those that are hurting. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. That is what incarnational ministry looks like. Jesus keeps incarnating the grace and truth of God and saying, this is what my Father's kingdom is like. And then he shows them, and he kind of blows everybody's categories out of the water. Hey, real quick, will somebody hit the ACs on? It might just be me, but I feel like it's getting toasty in here. <laughs> Maybe it's the conviction of the Lord. Tongues <laughs> 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 And y'all know, like, in a world of labels, you might start asking yourself, like, where do I fit in with all these labels, with all these different groups? You know, Jesus doesn't try. He doesn't try to fit in. He he breaks the mold. He explodes the categories. Have you ever looked at his followers? Like, you got Matthew, who's a tax collector working for the establishment for the Romans. And in the same group of people, you've got Simon, who's a zealot, whose whole goal in life is to slit a Roman's throat if he can get him alone. And you've got Pharisees and Sadducees and people from every socioeconomic background, every race, every age, every gender following Jesus. And they've checked their old categories, their mistaken messages and their broken beliefs at the door, because they've seen a better message. They've seen a message of a coming kingdom, of a new humanity, and they see it not just in words, but they see it in the flesh in a person in Jesus, and it gives them hope to leave all that other junk behind and follow a new way. The gospel is countercultural. The gospel will transform your view of culture. You know, Paul, one of the early pastors and, and shepherds in the church, missionaries, he says it this way in Romans. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world anymore, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't let those categories of this world go in and infiltrate your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind in the gospel. Ask yourself, am I conformed or am I transformed? Think about the way you're thinking about current things, whether it's politics, race relations, any of the hot-button issues of our day. What's informing that? What's informing that? Are you seeing the gospel through your cultural lens or are you seeing your culture through a gospel lens? See, Jesus sees the coming kingdom. He sees what it's like and he reaches forward into the future and he pulls it back into the present, as it were. And he shows people what it's like in flesh and blood, in real time. And tons of people flock to him, but that's, we know that's not the only response, is it? A lot of people leave their stuff and follow him, but other people are threatened. Other people don't like it. What's the other response? In that classic text on the incarnation about the word being made flesh in verse 11, it says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Like imagine running for office. And you go to your family and your friends and the people who are supposed to like take your yard sign and say, Vince for mayor, right? And put it in their yard and run, run fundraisers for you and stuff. And they reject you. They say, get out of here. That's what happened with Jesus. And we see it in this passage that we were reading. In 429, after he rolled up the scroll of Isaiah and he said, today, this is fulfilled in your ears. Look at what happens in verse 29. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of a cliff, a hill, on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Why? Why? Why would you want to throw him off a cliff? It's because he claimed to be the Messiah and they couldn't let their sink into their minds. Their category. They didn't have categories for it. He's not going to do it in our way. He's not going to be bringing our kingdom. He's bringing something else. We're not ready for that. They can't see the truth because they're blinded in their cultural moment. They're seeing the gospel through their culture's lens. They're conformed, not transformed, and they can't take a new mindset. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. They're stuck in their old ways. I wonder how many of us today are. God's people are called to be salt of the earth, light in darkness, a city set on a hill, And yet they're being changed instead of bringing change. And the result of that is always the result of that. The world suffers. If you look at the suffering around the world today, I'm gonna make a bold statement and say that it's because the church has not lived out her identity fully yet. We haven't believed the gospel to the degree that we've gotten up out of our seat and gone and lived it out. These people wanted him dead. And know what? You know, three and a half later they actually, three and a half years later, they actually got their way. They marched him up another hill. Instead of throwing him off a, f- a cliff, they threw him on a cross and they killed him. And the man who loved us, who showed us grace and the truth of God, the man who incarnated the kingdom of God by teaching and healing and loving, the man who lived out a perfect life in our place. He ended up dying a death that we should have died. Jesus did what we couldn't do. For all the times that I've said and you've said, my kingdom come, my will be done. For all the fear that we've allowed to fortify us against one another. For all of the pride we've let drive us to dominate each other. For all the apathy that we've let drive us to just blend in and assimilate and lose our identity Christ took all the fear, all the pride, all the apathy, all the misguided allegiances, and he ultimately put them to death within himself so that we could be given life. So we could be given life in their place. On the cross, he displayed the love of God incarnate. So now, I know it's been heavy to this point, but I just want to share some good news with you. Because of the dark place of the cross, today, we're free, Do you know that? Do you believe that? Today we're free. You don't have to be motivated by fear anymore. You don't. Because through the cross, God shows us that even in the darkest hours, he's got it. Even when it seemed like the world was broken and hopeless, God was sovereign over it. He had a plan. You guys see that in the story? In the darkest hour on earth became the brightest light and hope of redemption because three days later, Jesus rose victorious. God is in control Anything in your life that you feel overwhelmed by, God's big enough to handle it. God's got a plan for it. He's sovereign, and even in the most broken moments, he can redeem it. Amen? And and second, you don't have to give up and give in to apathy. Because on the cross, God shows us that he cares. He's weeping with those who weep. This family that's lost, Alfred, That's weeping and mourning. God identifies with this suffering family today. None of us can understand exactly what they're feeling like our God can. Because he lost a family member that was perfectly innocent. And he was put to death by the authorities. In fact, the cross is God coming and suffering alongside, the cross is God marching across the bridge with us in nonviolent protest. The cross is God showing us his determination to make things right. And thirdly, today, you don't have to be motivated by pride. Because Jesus, you know, Jesus was always right. He's perfectly humble. You ever notice that? Always right, but perfectly humble. And in the end, when they killed him, in the end, who won? When they crucified him from the outside, it kind of looked like they'd won. We know the truth, though. Three days later, he rose again. We know the truth. He's reigning right now as king. That in the end, we win. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be swallowed up in pride and try to take control. We don't have to give up and be apathetic. The good news of the kingdom is Jesus won. I remember um, I was born in Indianapolis, and a few years ago, back when the Colts were a good franchise, I used to root for them. And um, I remember one one year the Colts won the Super Bowl and I was just like celebrating, yeah, you know, excited and it panned over to the city and you see people just like dancing in the streets, which is crazy if you're from Indiana cuz people just don't do that there and you see people wearing the Colts jerseys and the shit we won. We won. And it was funny like the cynic in me or something just was like you didn't win. What are you talking about you won? You're wearing a Peyton Manning jersey. You weren't out on the field, right? Peyton Manning threw the ball. You didn't win anything. What are you talking about we won? But then it was almost like I felt the love of God sweep in where that cynicism was and, and just show me a little bit of a gospel truth there. The truth of the gospel is we won, but we didn't win. We won because of who we identify with. He was out on the field. He played the game as it were. He's the one who, who won for us. We got the victory even though we didn't win because of Jesus, amen? Yeah. So we don't have to be afraid for anything. But for a moment there, I think the powers that thought they be, um, or th- the powers that be thought they had won. If you fast forward the story a little bit, I just want to kind of bookend it with this picture. You know what happened in 70 AD? It's crazy, crazy story. Titus Andronicus, the great Roman general, comes in with the Roman legions. And they crush the rebellion of the Zealots, and they destroy the temple of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they even further cut off the Essenes who are out there in the wilderness to where all that's left of them is sand and scriptures and empty, deserted dwellings. And all those things, all those movements, all those aspirations, all those ideologies came to nothing. They're gone. In fact, it's 2,000 years later and every government that was around at that point, guess where they are? Gone. But the church is still here. How did that happen? What was different about this thing that Jesus started with the church, this incarnational family of followers? They kept growing and growing until they turned the world upside down. And, and I think this, the answer to that is found in what Isaiah prophesied. Remember what Isaiah said would happen to those who were healed by the one who would come in the spirit of God? He says, and I, I want you to pay attention to this because this is you he's talking about. They become repairers, menders, and restorers of broken lives and desolate cities. The love of God revealed in their lives is going to draw hearts of people back to the ancient paths of true worship and restore confidence in God and his laws. That's what verse four is about. Verse six says they become a kingdom of priests, ministers of our God. Verse seven, they become his bride, beautifully arrayed in the robes of righteousness and the garment of salvation that he, their bridegroom, provides for them. This is the legacy of the church, by the way. This is what we're called to be. It's definitely not what we always are, but it's what we're called to be. Put another way, you know, back at the beginning of John, it says Jesus came and incarnated, right? In the end of John, Jesus sends out his followers in verse uh, chapter 20, verse 21, and 22, and he says this. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Actually, I want you to say that with me real quick. Will you say that with me? Let's say it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus commissioned his church. Just as he'd been sent to do this work, he sent out his people, his bride, his kingdom of priests to do the same work empowered to be the new humanity. And that's exactly what they did. They lived their lives together as a family on mission. If you just read through Acts, right? Acts chapter two, they're filled with the spirit. Acts chapter three, they start demonstrating the gospel. They start healing people. They start declaring the gospel, even to the religious leaders who are ready to persecute them, right? It just keeps going and going until Acts chapter 11, one of my favorite things. And I want to close with this picture. There's this city called Antioch. Anybody ever heard of it? In Acts chapter 11, it says it's the first place that the followers were called Christians. Now, you got to understand something about the city of Antioch. It was the third largest city in the world at that time. It was Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. 500,000 people, half a million people, huge city. And like many of the cities of that day, it had a wall around it, but unlike many of the cities, it had walls inside of it. You say, that's weird. It had a grid system that we kind of take for granted today, you know, perpendicular streets. That wasn't a thing back in the day, but but it was here in Antioch. And these walls, the reason that they built them is because in so many cities back in the day, where you had mixed populations, you would have huge race riots that could destroy and decimate a city. So they put the Jews in one quarter, and they put the Greeks in another quarter, and they put the Romans in another quarter, and they divided the city up between the races. And the problem with it was, like you would think, okay, maybe that's a cool solution. The problem was, If we're going to divide by race, right, that's one difference that we can find. But if that's not available to us, it's almost like we're just looking for other ways to find differences. You notice that? We'll find differences in gender or socioeconomic standing or age or anything. We find some kind of way to try to level ourselves up and feel like we're better than others. And in those corridors, even though the races were divided, each corridor had its poor, it's marginalized, it's sick, it's suffering, and it's wealthy. And when the gospel hit the city of Antioch, for the first time ever, Christians started crossing the walls and taking care of each other's poor and taking care of each other's needy. And pretty soon, there was a small family, a city within a city, as it were, that was living in this totally new way. And people in the city saw it and they were drawn to Christ through it to the point that almost all of Antioch at one point had become Christian, even in the face of persecution. And you couldn't peg a Christian in Antioch based on their race or their background or their age or anything else because everybody was a Christian. They really mirrored the world around them. The leadership of the church reflected that world. It was one of the most diverse leaderships in in all the ancient world. And the cool thing was the entire city was transformed because of the gospel and through the work of God's people in that city. What a picture. You know, in ancient world, it became a hub of mission for the entire world. It was one of the central Christian cities in the apostolic age. Because the gospel had transformed it. And how? It (laughs) It hadn't done it through fortification, through domination or assimilation. But it had done it because the gospel incarnated through the church and empowered people by the Holy Spirit. And Guys, at the end of the day, that's what our hope is here in this city. Our hope for New City is that we would be a countercultural city within the city, a family that shows the world the love of God in our very existence together, in our daily life together. When you start, imagine, imagine seeing people in every walk of life, educators, politicians, in the arts community, in, in business, and in entrepreneurship, in, in every aspect of society, seeing people become Christians, become disciples, not trying to fortify, assimilate, or, or dominate, right? But, but, but actually incarnate the love of God through what they're called to do and transform the culture around us. Can you, can you imagine what that would look like? That's our hope for this city. And the cool thing is, I see the seeds of hope in that. I see, look around the room. This is one family, all, we're not divided by race, class, age, or gender, right? This is one family. We just had a pastor's coffee and it warmed my heart because two of the newer people who started attending New City said, we felt drawn to the church when we showed up the first time we said, this feels like family here. Because it didn't feel like some of, the, some of the groups that they'd gone to that were just, you know, homogenous, let's say that word, homogenous, right? It's a family, it's, this looks like what heaven's gonna look like. The diversity, the beauty. Are are you guys looking forward to that? It's the kingdom, yeah. The kingdom of God. What do we do with those seeds of hope that God's planted here? How do we respond? And I'll I'll close with this. How do we respond to the systemic racism out there? How do we respond to the broken dialogues we see on Facebook and, and the cultural bias instead of the gospel? How do we respond to the homelessness and the poor among us? To the broken views of Gender, to the despair in politics, to the corporate greed. I want to tell you how we're going to respond. I'm going to read it one more time. Here's how. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. What does it look like for us to be a counter-cultural family A city within the city that gives people a glimpse of that coming kingdom. How do we do it? Well, three things. One, today, and I hope you'll join me in this because I want to lead off in this and just do it myself. We're going to repent. We're going to repent from our fear and from our pride and from our apathy that have led us to get involved in stances of fortifying and dominating and assimilating. And we're going to believe the gospel That we are free from all those old ways. We're free from our need for fear, pride, and apathy. And we're free to incarnate. And guys, the more we believe the gospel, the more we rehearse it, the more it's gonna show up in our life. The more it's gonna free us to live it out and incarnate it. And that's the third point is we're gonna obey. And we're gonna embody that coming kingdom right here and we're gonna let it spread out. Would you close your eyes with me? I'm just gonna pray over us. Father, we need you. We, we can't do this on our own. On our own, we have these defaults in our heart of misguided messages and broken beliefs that kind of lead us off track. And we have these motivations of pride and, and anger and apathy and, and fear. I pray you would change us at a heart level, that you would change me at a heart level today it's that I would become somebody who embodies justice and reconciliation in a culture that's full of injustice and resentment. I pray that you would free us as a church to embody racial equality and family unity in a culture of systemic racism, to embody grace and truth in a culture of hate and lies, to embody patience and humility, In a culture of self centered pride and politics. God, help us to be a picture of the coming kingdom. Help us to be the change that we're all longing to see in the world. I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to be the healing that our neighbors and cities need and to work from that reality to bring restoration to the culture and the desolate cities around us. God, when we ask, What is our salvation for? I pray that we would leave here with hearts beating. to to, to see your glory manifest and to see some good come into this world, some change, some transformation, God, starting right here with us. Have your way in this church. Have your way through us.